Welcome to Hive Mind, the weekly podcast from the Beehive about the latest and greatest in pop culture. I am Meg Walter, and today I am on Zoom with Lindsay Encinas. Encinas? Yes. And yeah. Eli McCann. Hello, my friends. How are you? Hi. Hi, I'm doing great. So glad to hear that. Uh, Lindsay, tell us what you've been watching. Um, I have been watching my usual menu of trash. Good. And, and I mostly dialed into Bravo, and so... I got something every night, every night of the week. (laughs) Just just like the greatest blessing you can possibly imagine, right? It really is. After this year, this is what I need. So, Lindsay, I know that you're a big Housewives fan. How does Salt Lake compare to the other cities, in your opinion? It's really good. It's Really? really, really good, yes. And I feel like I'm pretty plugged into Housewives culture Uh (laughs) there is one and kind of media and it's it looks really good the ratings are like not that great but people are loving it Andy Cohen said it's here to stay so I I think it's great and I'm really fascinated by the Utah influencers response versus like the nation's (laughs) response (laughs) yeah we uh Emily and I recorded an episode of the green room today and we get into the influencer response which I personally think has been hilarious uh it's been fun it's been fun to watch people clutch their pearls so to speak about this um completely ridiculous television show wait I have a question about Real Housewives I'm I'm not familiar with the show so are there multiple seasons of Real Housewives in one single location? Oh, Eli. Oh, there's a whole world out there. So wait, is it like, so like the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City is like its own show. It's not a season of a show. It's just its own show. It what? It is a franchise unto itself. Oh, oh dear. I just thought it was kind of like Survivor. Like every season they go somewhere <laughs> new. It's not like that. Oh, no. No, no, no. You no. have we're in this for the long haul. Like this is here to uh, it's, stay. It's not a one and done. I have just been <laughs> assuming like, oh, we'll get like a run episodes in Salt Lake. They'll move on to the next city, like the traveling circus that they are, and we'll see where they go next. I'm really quite upset about this. Now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll let Eli process that. Uh, Lindsay, have you been watching anything else? Um, I've watching a lot of housewives. There's three seasons on right now. So that's been exciting. I've also started to dive into, this is an unintended pun, but below deck. Mm. Um, Yes. Which I've dabbled in before, but I'm really desperate. And so, and now that the bachelor is on Tuesdays, I need a Monday night show. So below deck is my new Monday night show. Wonderful. What a, what a well-rounded media diet you have. (laughs) Very well-rounded indeed. Uh, Eli, what have you been watching? Basically nothing other than the crown and Rudy Giuliani press conferences, which are just (laughs) a trip. But the other day, so Meg, you and I were texting about Hallmark and Lifetime Christmas movies, as you Uh know. And so I was trying to find one particular um, Lifetime Christmas movie and I ended up getting sucked into this list of all the Hallmark and Lifetime Christmas movies that have existed and just watching trailer after trailer. And you guys, they're bad. All of them are bad. (laughs) But like, 
the watching the trailers is like the amount of commitment that I want to give for that kind of trash content. And so like, I could like watch a one minute trailer and just, and like laugh and laugh and laugh and then just click on the next one and just keep going. This was like three hours of my day the other day, but I highly recommend it. Are you guys Hallmark movie, uh, Christmas movie people? So I did, um, a podcast interview about it the other day on the Lisa Valentine Clark show, uh, which is on BYU radio. And it was, it was a conversation about Hallmark Christmas movies. And I watched one in preparation for that conversation. I fast forwarded, I, I gave it 15 minutes and then I skipped all the way to the end. Honestly did not miss a single thing. Mm. Like they are all the exact same thing. They're all named something. The one I watched was Christmas contract. And then they're always like candy cane station or like Christmas saving Christmas or like a Louisiana Christmas. Like it's all like they (laughs) handed the script to a child and were like, what should we call this? You know how kids always call like brown dogs brownie. It's like they do that. Like they couldn't even get beyond (laughs) the most obvious possible title. I don't, I don't really get it. You know what I fit, I learned a few years ago? This is probably three or four years ago. You know, they film a lot of the Hallmark Christmas movies in Salt Lake City. Like, we, we're just like a city where they do a lot of Because we them. have, there's something in like our tax code that makes it really cheap for people to film here. Yeah, it's, it's something like that. And so a, a few years ago, Candace Cameron was on Main Street for like a whole week filming some Christmas mo- Hallmark Christmas movie. And I saw her because I work, I work on Main Street and there was a whole, they had like this whole block shut down for like five days. And she was filming this movie in like late September, early October, that thing was out on Hallmark <laughs> on like on Thanksgiving Day. Like post production on that movie could not have been more than four weeks. And so, like, I just think that they just like churn them out as fast as they can. I watched one of them that year that was also filmed in downtown Salt Lake City, and the love interest, the entire movie had huge pit stains, like wet pit stains. <laughs> like dripping down, like all the way down to his like waist area on both sides, the entire movie. And I was like, get this guy another shirt. But like, they don't got time to change. No. They're like, oh, we got to whip this out. 200 movies a year. Yeah, I, I was noticing the clothes that they were wearing in this Christmas contract that I watched and none of the clothes fit. Like they were clearly wardrobe from a previous movie that like... <laughs> We're in no way tailored to the bodies of the leads. Like it was, it was a truly wild experience. Um, yeah, I think that's it for my Hallmark Christmas movie consumption this year. Lindsay, do you ever partake? No, I don't watch them. And I wondered, often wondered why I don't. And I don't know. I just can't get into it. I just, you know, it's not for me. But yeah. as a writer, I have often wondered if I could write a script to one. you 100% could you could do it in an afternoon you can do it right you can do it while we're recording this podcast yeah all you have to do is take a script of any rom-com and then just like change the names and a few of the words because that's what they all are like every single one of them as I was watching the previews I was like oh this is you've got mail oh this is sleepless (laughs) in Seattle oh this is runaway bride it's just in Christmas. Like every single one of them is just like, oh, that's the plot of that movie. That's the plot of it. They're not coming up with original stories. I promise we can move on from this. But as I was watching this movie, like it's clearly Vancouver in like August or whatever. And like they went 
they pulled out like the few Christmas decorations they have. They're not even like good Christmas decorations. They just make sure like in one, in every shot, there's like one or two like home goods wreaths, you yeah. know? And you're like, oh, it's Christmas. Just a reminder, it's Christmas. All these people and, are in tank tops, but it's Christmas. And they have snow on trees that are like full green leaf trees. <laughs> <laughs> it's like dead of summer <laughs> and they just throw snow on them. And it's like, no, you guys, that's still summer. There's just white stuff on the tree. <laughs> it's so bad. Uh, all right. Is that it from you? That's it for me. What have you been watching, Meg? Um, we're just still re-watching Veep. Last night, we got to the episode where they, they're doing the recount in Nevada, and they're learning that it's the military ballots that are coming in, and so they are against Selena Meyer, so they have to change from being pro-recount to anti-recount. I just can't believe how prophetic that show truly is. In a way, it's comforting to just see how depraved these people are depicted. It gives me like some solace to know that it's always been that way in politics. We're just seeing it kind of play out without the normal skill we've seen it played out uh, in the past. So I'm enjoying it for that reason. And then, of course, The Crown watched all 10 episodes in the space of two days, which is why we have gathered here today. To talk about The Crown season four, in my opinion, the best season so far. Yes. Your thoughts? Yeah, Great. I would say um, I, the first season is is so good. The the World War Two post World War Two Winston Churchill of it all is like very iconic to me, and I think it will be for a long time. This is the most excited that I've been watching a season since that first season, and I've loved them all. I don't have an issue with any of them. But the Margaret Thatcher and Princess Diana, I mean, that is like bomb storylines. And so you couldn't go wrong. Yeah. Lindsay, what do you like about it? Yeah, I, I listened to the You're Wrong About series about uh, Princess Diana leading up to it. So I was prepared. And I've been really impressed with, at least from what I know from that and my like Wikipedia dives, how accurate it's been. Um, but also like weaving it into all the other things, like how they did in the favorites that you had the Falkland Wars, plus all these other things. I, I'm just incredibly impressed. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm incredibly impressed too. Um, let's just quickly go through kind of what happens this season. Uh, there's 10 episodes. We start with, um, we start with the fire, the gold stick. The first episode in which Dickie goes out to sail uh, and is tragically murdered. This is kind of a way for us to understand the importance of Prince Charles getting married. Um, and Prince Charles has been seeing Camilla Parker Bowles, who he's currently married to. Um, and his family disapproves of Camilla, I think primarily because she's married, but, uh, Dickie sends him this letter. It's like, Hey, you know, you really have to find someone to marry. And he meets Diana for the first time. Is Margaret already prime minister in this first episode? Mm, I don't think yet. She's not introduced quite yet when he's not meeting yet. Diana. Yeah. Um, and then we head into Balmoral, which is when we meet uh, Margaret Thatcher. And she actually goes to Balmoral with the royals and it does not go well. Mm -hmm. Weird that they made me sympathetic of Margaret Thatcher in that episode. Uh -huh. um, 
And I thought it was interesting the way they framed it, bringing in Diana, who excelled at Balmoral because she's of the same class as the royals. I, I forget how big of a deal class is in England. Mm-hmm. You know, I was listening to Who Weekly today and they were talking about Jamie Lee Curtis, who is married to Christopher Guest, who is a baron. Did you guys know that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so Jamie Lee Curtis is technically a baroness, but she refuses to be uh, called a baroness because she says she hasn't done anything to deserve it. And in England, that's just like (laughs) such a foreign concept to them. They can't understand why she wouldn't want that title and they're kind of affronted by it. And you want to hear something really crappy? Mm. They have children who are adopted. And so those children can't be nobles. What? Because they're adopted? Yeah. Oh, wow. These yeah. Arch- archaic rules don't get updated, I guess. No, which I is kind of maybe the thesis of the crown. Yeah. I don't know, we'll get to it. But then yeah. isn't, see, that's what I think, but then I become so sympathetic. So it is really interesting because Peter Morgan, the writer, or he's kind of a royalist, right? Uh, I don't know. Like a a royal sympathizer? Like he, yeah, like a royal sympathizer because I always end up coming out of these episodes like, oh, they're kind of normal, but at the same time, this razor's edge of this is inhumane. A lot of what I've read has indicated that in Britain, this is viewed as an anti-royal show. Oh, this is interesting. Which is wow. interesting because I do feel like he's sympathetic toward the queen. It, I'm not surprised that it's viewed that way because I do feel like the argument of keep for why we should keep the royals around as it's explained in the show constantly feels like a circle to me where they're like, we have to maintain this in order to keep the family, you know, because we have to be, we're the royals. And so we have to do that. And it's like, okay, but why do you have to be the royals? Well, because that's what we do is that we act like royal. And they're just like constantly like walking in this circle where they're like, we must, this is our duty. But why? What purpose does it serve? Because that's what we do because we fulfill our duties. And like, they, there's never really, and maybe that art articulation does exist out there somewhere, but I don't feel like the show gives it to you. Do you guys feel like the show ever like truly justifies like, and it's good that there's a royal family because this is how it makes the country better. Do you think that argument is made? I feel like in season one and two, it, there was that argument made more pronounced which is not a grammatically correct sentence but it was more like our duty is to be a constant whereas prime ministers come and go and parliament comes and goes we are always here we are a needed branch of government but as the seasons have gone on it's really kind of highlighted the futility of the royals and how afraid they are of people understanding that futility it kind of seems like, at least in these in these later seasons, the only justification that they kind of give for why royals are good is as diplomats. Like, it, it, the royals are just kind of a wreck in England, but then every time they send somebody out to go on tour, it's always like this huge success, and they, it improves relationships between a countries. Triumph. A triumph. Yeah, they go to, in this season, they go to Australia, Diana and, and Charles, and it's a triumph. And last season, Margaret went to the U.S. and did her U.S. tour, and that was very successful. And so, like, I guess to the extent that they're, 
viewed as sort of diplomats to kind of help bridge gaps between countries. That's great. But within England itself, I don't think they really make the case in the show or try very hard to make the case for why the royal family is valuable. I guess the one exception this season is the apartheid storyline and Queen Elizabeth's involvement in the sanctions there and pushing back against Margaret, Margaret Thatcher. But yeah. kind of case in point, because the Queen loses that, like ultimately realizes she actually doesn't end up having any power and she steps on her own toes and then has to walk back what she does. And you're just sort of left with, okay, like the royal family is not involved in this kind of decision-making. Lindsay, I'm interested in your view that Peter Morgan is a royal sympathizer. And I wonder what made you think that. I think, well, I guess because, so I watched The Queen whenever that came out. Maybe what was it? 2006. Oh, okay. Almost 15 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And I came out of that feeling like, okay, we have a lot of sympathy for the Queen. And then the first two seasons, like you said, Eli, like I came out of it feeling like, okay, I feel sympathy for the Queen. And then, and I guess it's that cyclical thing is that it keeps coming back to, okay, well, they're the one constant. And it, I, it is definitely more on shaky ground this season, especially I think as you get to know the children better, because mm-hmm. you see the children that. Suck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And because you see that the, the queen is the constant, but the kids are not really in a great position um, to take this, the crown over. And, because I'm a dumb American, I Googled get rid of royals the other day because I couldn't think of a better way to say it. Um, and I was Air like, Jeeves. <laughs> and I was shocked to find out that overwhelmingly in England, people support the monarchy. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. I thought that it would be like, I don't know, 20, 30%, but it was like 70 or something. Wow. 70 or 80% of people. I was shocked. So... That's the other thing I'm kind of left with is just how much my national identity as an American kind of shades my view of of the series. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I I feel like we'll we'll keep circling back to this, uh, but more on the plot of the story. I I feel like the this season kind of it's two roads diverge and we follow both. We have the Margaret Thatcher aspect of it and we have the princess diana aspect of it and then the queen is at kind of the center of both of those stories um so on the princess diana front diana and charles start dating a very short courtship he proposes and she is essentially stranded in buckingham palace until the day of their wedding while he goes off on a royal tour i'm interested to hear from the two of you if princess diana was a privileged person right there's no denying that she came from money she married into royalty she was beautiful she had everything she wanted is what are we supposed to feel toward diana is it sympathy is it like wow that's too bad that happened like is it you should have known better what was your reaction to her storyline this season Oh, I, I just only feel bad for her. Yeah. You know, she's, she's super young. She's taken advantage of, yes, she came for money, but she's taken advantage of 
by the most powerful people in her world that mm-hmm. she could ever possibly need. She's taken completely taken advantage of. She's obviously got a lot of issues, very significant issues that she's working through. She's got a, an eating disorder. She's got suicidal ideation. And she is married to a man who's much older than her and is like the second most powerful person in the country in a way. And so I, don't, I, just, I just see this and think, it kind of reminds me in some ways of um, Monica Lewinsky, like this mm. young this young person who, yeah, maybe made made some choices that are regrettable, but also a super young person who is in the hands of very, very powerful people. So like mm-hmm. how how much can you hold her accountable compared to how accountable we should hold the queen and her family who are watching this happen, who are seeing her cries for help, who are kind of plowing over her and not assisting her with what are obviously very significant problems. Lindsay, what do you think? Yeah, I feel really similarly in terms of her vulnerability and how unprotected she was as she was brought into this world. I feel terrible. And, um, it's just, it's a tragedy. It really is the whole thing from start to finish. But really that's kind of my whole takeaway is like Charles's life is kind of a tragedy. They're all, their lives are pretty miserable. And yes, they have privilege in so many ways, but they're being forced into a lifestyle that they didn't choose. And I definitely don't think that Diana was at her age, like completely cognizant of what she was getting into. And there was nobody there to, to let her know the perils of what she was embarking on. I think what, one of the strangest things, and the series really underscores this, is that the thing that Diana actually did well was the thing she was punished for by the family, which was like ingratiating the royal family to all of these people across the world. You know, she's like actually, unlike them, she's actually good at showing up to things and getting people to feel sympathy for the royal family. And they're pissed at her about it. And they're like scolding her for it because I guess, I think at least it's the show's position that Charles feels very threatened by the fact that she's doing his job way better than he's ever done. Um, The rest of the family just kind of sees her as somebody who likes being the center of attention. And that may be true, but it's so weird as you watch this to see this royal family be like, it doesn't matter why she's doing it. This is good for you guys. You're always crying about the fact that you need the people to want you. And now she's giving the people a lot of reason to want you and you're mad about it. And that is a really, really strange thing to watch. Isn't that kind of humanity across the board though like high tides rise all ships but i want my ship to be the highest ship or i want to be the one who's rising the tide yeah 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 um yeah i i view this as really a tragedy and Lindsay, i'm also at times sympathetic to prince charles like he's the actual worst in this um and a petty child but how much of that is just a consequence of the life he was brought up in? I, I think the lead up to their marriage is pretty heartbreaking. Um, that solemn moment he shares with the queen and even all the adults in his life talking about whether or not they should call off the wedding and ultimately deciding that their feelings don't matter, um, that their humanity doesn't matter. And this is all for duty, I think. It's super, super tragic. Uh, so they, sorry, Eli, what were you going to say? Something? I was just going to say, I got no sympathy for Prince Andrew. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
that, that sucks. <laughs> I thought that and that episode was super interesting. Um, where Margaret Thatcher tells Queen Elizabeth that she has a favorite child. Without question, her son is her favorite child over her daughter. She has twins. Um, and that makes the queen really question whether it's appropriate, first of all, to have a favorite child and who her favorite child is. And, and she never comes out really and says it, but her favorite child is Andrew, who now is a complete train wreck. Um, and I, why do you think that episode is part of this season? I mean... Got to set up the next 20 years, right? I didn't, yeah. And it, it gave us an opportunity to develop each of the kids' characters because they're, yeah, they're going to become more core cast. Um, I mean, it's kind of the only significant amount of time this season that we really got with Andrew or what's the youngest one's name? I don't even remember his Edward. name. Edward. You don't really see Edward very much. Um, last season, Anne got a lot of screen time and actually missed season three Anne. I thought she was such mm-hmm. a fun character. This season she she's kind of turned into a dud, which she's is a bummer. Yeah, she's a bummer. Like she's just she's no longer that like young, exciting part person in the royal family who's keeping it hip. And that was kind of disappointing. Like it was sad to see that. But mm-hmm. yeah, that that was the episode where you got like the significant amount of times with all the kids to kind of see where they are and what they're like. Interesting that they didn't spend really any time at all about on Prince Andrew's wedding to Fergie because Fergie was like a major figure and still is, you know, their wedding was also very much talked about, but I wonder why they just really kind of glossed over it. Is it because Andrew's so problematic now and they didn't want to fantasize his story? Yeah. It made me think that too. And I have a question for you, Meg. How did it make you feel as a mom watching that episode? <laughs> did <What>? Horrified? <laughs> it, it definitely gave me pause for, <laughs> for some self-reflection about motherhood. And I, that was, I really enjoyed that. And this might be a little controversial. I really enjoyed that episode. I got a little bit of Diana burnout mm-hmm. a couple times. And I, like you, Eli, kind of missed learning more about Anne and some of the other players in the last several seasons. So I particularly like that episode, kind of getting a little bit of a break from the Diana train. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. On the other side of it, I could not have gotten too much of uh, Margaret Thatcher. Make an entire, make the whole series about Margaret Thatcher. That was super fascinating. Yeah. (laughs) Um... The Margaret Thatcher stuff, I, I like you, could have done with triple the Margaret Thatcher. I, but I also just think politics are the most compelling stories we can tell. Um, I think Gillian Anderson slayed this. Mm-hmm. And she definitely went big. And I think that when you get a big performance, people love it or hate it. I happen to love it. I thought it was spectacular. What, what did you guys think? Absolutely. She's, she's phenomenal. You couldn't have asked for, for a better performance and her scenes with the queen, I think were the best scenes of the series. Like every single time the two of them were interacting, I was just like, make this go on for an hour. I don't want this to end. Like it was so, cause you see the two big powerhouses of the show, the same age, women who are the same age in a room together, going to battle with each other. I mean, pump that into my veins. I will take that all day long. 
Yeah, I could have done definitely with even more of that. And like I said, maybe a little less of Diana. I don't know. Yeah. But I, I love the Margaret Thatcher. And I think that, yeah, Jillian Anderson's performance is perfect. I I loved it. And I I think the commentary on womanhood and women in power was so compelling. I loved mm-hmm. that. I did too. Uh, especially it's interesting that Margaret Thatcher, like looking back, everyone kind of agrees that she sucks. Right. (laughs) But like she watching the way that she sucked was super interesting and how stubborn she was and that she was prime minister for that long, even though she sucked, like she was a talented politician. Well, it's weird because as much as she sucked, you still admire her while you watch it because she's so competent like her competency is incredible. The way she communicates, like her, uh, you know, she just, she enters a room and fills it and people are scared of her and she has, she's just full of confidence. And you kind of like, I don't know, I would watch it and I almost am like subconsciously rooting for her, but then I'm like, but I don't like what you're doing, but I'm rooting for you. It's that sort of evil villain that you like because they're so good at what they do situation. And it was really well done. What were your guys's uh, memories of Margaret Thatcher as kids or like remember like hearing about her? I maybe my grandparents lived in England when I was young, when I was before I was born, right before I was born. And so I remember them talking a lot about Margaret Thatcher and mm. liking her. I didn't know she oh, was unlikable really? or unpopular. Or I don't even know if they liked her, but I remember thinking something totally different than what I've come to learn now. The, That's the, interesting. The, yeah, the only thing that I knew about Mar- Margaret Thatcher growing up was that she was part of like the Reagan sort of yes. Cold War fight. And I knew that there was like that famous event where she danced with Ronald Reagan. Like I, I like kind of vaguely knew about that as a kid. I was like, oh, she's a British leader who danced with Ronald Reagan and she was part of all that. I didn't actually know anything about her until I saw the Iron Lady, Meryl Streep's movie that Meg hates. Eli's um, favorite movie. The it's Iron not Lady. my favorite movie, but you I love like, the Iron Lady. I love that movie. I think it's super fascinating. Ugh. But so that that movie was like my first time where I was like, oh, that's what she did. Like that's the kind of like philosophy that she had. And so yeah, that that was my whole only exposure. I had no idea who Margaret Thatcher was until probably my twenties. Um, I didn't even really know who Princess Diana was until she died. Um, I, what are your guys' memories of Princess Diana? Dying, uh, like I knew that she was a person who existed, and when she died, I was like, "Oh, the princess, you know, from England died," but I didn't know anything about her. Did you guys, was the Beanie Baby, did it come out before or after her death? <laughs> Do you remember the Beanie Baby? Yeah, no, I don't know. Probably after. A, probably after. I remember being at a sleepover and my friend and her mom waking up in the middle of the night to watch her funeral and like sobbing. Mm. <laughs> and I was Sorry, like, that's I, not funny. <laughs> like, it was like, you know, the weird in between, you're like in a strange house, people crying. <laughs> Yes, that sounds awful. It was a very weird, like, fever dream experience for me. Well, and it's for, you know, for our parents' generation, it would be like if Kate Middleton had this, like, tragic death now. Like, we obviously would all be very tuned into that. And I saw my parents' generation tuned in in the way that I think we would be if, like, a Kate Middleton had that kind of tragedy happen. Or, like, how we have been with Meghan Markle and all of that. Yeah. 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 Stuff. 
Um, I remember the Beanie Baby. I remember that Elton John song that, boy, did we hear a lot of that song. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Okay, but back to the season. So we're getting these two different stories playing out. Let's, Let's tackle the Diana story first. So they get married, and then we see things quickly deteriorate um she has prince william they go on this tour to australia he's been sleeping with camilla still um what do you guys think of the camilla character i was kind of bored with it actually i know you're not supposed to be but i kept tuning out whenever she was around maybe because i was too interested in the other stuff well, I, I really liked it and I don't know what that says about me that I'm like rooting for their love story. <laughs> but I, I really enjoyed the Camilla stuff and I think because I, I wasn't even really aware of her until they got married several years ago. And so I as an adult like learning about their relationship. I don't know. I've been really interested in that. Mm. I mean it is it is an interesting story. It's kind of Shakespearean in the way it all played out, right? Um, I, I thought it was interesting. I mean, of course, it's heartbreaking and tragic. I think the actor who portrays Camilla is very talented. Uh, and I pulled up photos of Camilla in her youth, and they made her look exactly like her. Um, uh, yeah, I I... I enjoyed it too. As problematic and sad as it was, I thought it was really well done. Um, On this Australian tour, they kind of are really coming to a head with their disagreements. And then they have this come to Jesus together and they decide that they're going to make it work. That lasts all of a week before they get into another screaming match because he's so jealous of her. And she starts having affairs while he's still sleeping with Camilla um and things just kind of get worse and worse and it's i feel like the show really makes it clear that they're just fundamentally a bad match um they're neither of them really know how to be in a marriage but beyond that they're just wildly incompatible uh, and I think we see that in Diana's thirst for attention and her love of being on stage for the anniversary. She gives him a VHS of her performing Phantom of the Opera. Not going to lie, I would hate that gift real bad. <laughs> if someone gave that to me, you know, like I, they're just a poor match and you can see how miserable they are, but they keep being talked into staying together by the royal family. Mm-hmm. What was your yeah, reaction because- to that? Well, and there's so much, it's even beyond just being talked into it because there's so much to lose. And don't you know, real life marriages like that, where you just, the stakes are too high. I mean, obviously not as high as like (laughs) the Royals, but there you, we all know marriages like that where people just keep talking themselves into it. They're super incompatible. They got married too young or in weird circumstances. And then the stakes are too high. So it is, to me, it's also kind of amazing knowing how it all plays out that they, that they do leave each other. I mean, it, it was so bad for, for many years, but I'm kind of impressed that, that they, that they left each other. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because it feels like all the forces in the world were trying to get them to stay together. Um, I really enjoy the movie, The Queen. And seeing, I feel like that's what, like another 10 years from where this season left leaves off and kind of witnessing how much worse 
Diana made their lives after she left the family. Um, I'm excited to see that play out next season. I think that's going to be super compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, so ultimately, we leave those two in a terrible marriage where um, he has found out that she's still sleeping with the redheaded man <laughs> who looks a lot like Prince Harry. <laughs> um, and he's ready to pursue a divorce. Am I remembering that correctly at the end of the season? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we had a couple one-off episodes this season. What did you guys think of the hereditary principle about the two mentally disabled relatives that they have hidden mm. away? It was sad. And it gave the queen mother um, something to do this season because she doesn't really have a lot to do uh, in season four. And um it's it's a disturbing conversation that they have that's essentially like, well, maybe it's inhumane for us to cast away disabled family members, but if we don't, then maybe people won't take the royal family seriously. And it's a dark conversation, but I, I think it was very interesting to watch that and sort of climb into the that sort of mentality that permeates through the royal family and and how scared they are of rocking the boat and to what lengths they'll go to make sure they don't. Yeah. And again, do you think that's because they're aware of their own futility? And if anything reveals a flaw, they're worried that people will recognize that the whole system is um, kind of messed up. Well, and it's, it's interesting because implied in that logic and argument is that they think that they themselves are perfect, basically. I mean, it, it kind of is implied in that, like, well, it's okay, we can be out there because we are obviously what the country should want to be like. We just can't put these other families members out there because then they'll realize that we are not perfect. It's a really strange thing to think about yourself and your family. Well, and it's interesting too that Princess Margaret's concern is, yes, that we're treating these people inhumanely, but more importantly, am I going to turn into how those people are? Like, really, her greatest concern is that she has the same disorder as her severely mentally handicapped cousins. Yeah, yeah. So we have that episode, and we also have Fagin about the downtrodden unemployed man who breaks into the queen's bedroom. What did you guys make of that? It was cool. It was a cool story. <laughs> I didn't know anything about that. Yeah, me neither. It was, it was very kind of crazy to see a depiction of somebody actually getting into Buckingham Palace and into the queen's bedroom. I think their scene as she's lying in the bed and she's obviously like scared, but she's also engaging with them was really interesting. Um, I loved it. It wasn't super necessary for the plot of the season, but I didn't mind. One of my big takeaways from that episode is when he's talking to the queen, because they have a conversation. He breaks into her bedroom and they have a full, like, what, 15 minute conversation. And he tells her, he mentions how chipped the paint is and how worn down Buckingham Palace is, which again, like Peter Morgan is infusing so much symbolism into every episode of this. What are the royals even doing anymore? What is this archaic system accomplishing Mm -hmm. for the people of England? And did anything even get accomplished with that conversation she had with Fagan? Like he expressed all these things to her, 
she was sympathetic, but ultimately there was nothing she could do while Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. So what, what purpose are they serving? Right. Yeah. Guys, everything in this show is obviously a, a symbol for something else. And that somebody, it really wasn't that hard to break in ultimately <laughs> that somebody could do it. It didn't, obviously the metaphor to that is that it's not, it's pretty fragile, the whole system. It can't be that yeah. hard to bring down. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, she seems to be the family member that's the most aware of that. And it feels like a lot of the times in the show, she's having to explain to everybody else the fragility of their situation. And I don't know why she is more tuned into that than the rest of them, if that was just better instilled in her at a young age. But she's the one that's constantly having to tell Margaret and in earlier seasons, tell her husband and now tell her kids like, no, you can't do that because our situation is very fragile. And she's always having like this battle with them over that. And I, I wonder why that is, why, why she's the only one who seems to grasp that consistently. Yeah, good question. Is it because she's the one, who, the only one in the family who's actually dealing in government affairs? Like the rest of them, their job is just to sit around and be rich, right? Yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah. And she's the only one doing important work and they all seem miserable because they have nothing to do. Right. That's a good yeah, point. Even she wasn't formally schooled. Like you said, she's had to be engaged to some degree in public discourse and politics where as everybody else, they, they haven't, I, I think you're right. I think she, I mean, she's the queen, but she does have to have some like touchstones of humanity at some point. She has to interface with the regulars, <laughs> call the prime minister, the regulars, but Mm-hmm. Um, she's got to carry that torch. So it's interesting that conversation she has with her youngest son, Edward, during the episode about her identifying her favorite child. And he says a bunch of really terrible things. And you can see the horror on her face as he's saying, like, everyone will want me to work for them because of who I am. The kids at school bully me, but they also respect me because of who I am. She doesn't really correct him. She just kind of lets him say those things and looks sad while he's saying it, but doesn't do anything to even like reprimand him a little bit. And is it just because she knows he's right? Like that is the case and that's going to be his life. He's going to be spoiled and entitled and people will want him to work there because he's Prince Edward and that's just the way it is. And there's nothing she can do about it. Yeah, maybe she did. She has she has weird interactions with all four of her kids in that episode. And she doesn't push back on really any of them. You know, Andrew's saying terrible things to her too. And he's using his position to get special perks. And she's just sort of like, Oh, okay. You know, and I don't know if she just feels kind of powerless with her adult children where it's just like, it, it, they are what they are. I don't know. Or is she just so, Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, is she just so overwhelmed by being queen that she can't deal with it? What were you going to say? Yeah, I agree. And I think she has the most combative relationship with Charles because she knows he's next. And so I think she has a much different relationship from what the show portrays with him than the rest of the kids. She puts way more pressure on him. Yeah. Like, I don't don't know that she's forcing the other kids into a Diana marriage to the degree (laughs) that she forced him. Yeah. Well, and we see the same thing now with William and Harry, right? Like, okay, yeah, Harry, leave the Royals, go live in Canada, whatever. It doesn't matter. You're not the heir, right? But if William did that, 
how much bigger of a deal would it be? You know, you can kind of like see on William and Kate, like they have this mantle of heaviness that they, this will be their lives always. And it's tough, you know, like these people are rich and spoiled, but it's not an easy life. Well, and they, the queen mother in that episode about the mental disabilities talks about she blames everything on the abdication and she gets called out yeah. by Margaret for that. She's like, but the abdication ruined everything. The abdication was so bad. And like the way they view that person in the line, giving up their position, she viewed as a tragedy that caused like massive ripple effects to the point that they're ostracizing people who can't take care of their, themselves within their family. And it's all because of the abdication. And so like, if you really do have that, mindset, then yeah, the person who is in line to take that mantle, they have an obligation. And if they don't fulfill that obligation, then it's tragedy. But the rest of them don't quite have that link. Yeah. Um, anything you guys want to add about the actual plot points of this season? Do you feel like we covered everything we should cover? Yeah. I was just wash over me. It was so good. <laughs> Phenomenal. They have a budget of five million pounds an episode, and you get the impression that not a single one of those pounds is wasted. Like Mm. every location is perfect. Every uh, the clothes in this Princess Diana's wardrobe this season was just completely astounding. Um, They find such. I think that the actor who plays Prince Charles, what's his name, Josh something i think he's the standout for me josh o'connor he's so good at being like a sniveling spoiled person i forget that i'm watching an actor Mm. um he's my favorite and do you he's so likable i think even while being awful he still manages to be likable which is impressive just kind of want to give him a hug you know like i'm just like you're so troubled he portrays that so well i think they're all so good. Um, I was delighted today to learn that we're actually getting two more seasons. I was under the impression that there's only one more and we're actually getting two more. I think we can assume that next season we're getting the divorce and the crash. Um, and then I don't know how far they'll go with that final season. Are we going to get up to this younger generation getting married or is it time to end the story with I- Diana? Yeah, I read that we were. This is going to take us just past two thousand. The series okay. would, and I don't know if that's still the plan. But I just I read that recently that that was sort of the initial plan for the show. Um, are we going to have a new Diana next season then? Because it's a new cast, right? It's the only actors they're switching out are um, Olivia Coleman is being replaced mm. by. I wrote it down and now I don't have it, but Miss, Miss Olivia Coleman. one of the Mama Mia people. Okay. Uh, and Meryl. is it Meryl? <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe she Prince, come back as Ma- Margaret. Prince Philip will also be new as will Princess Margaret. I got to say Helena Bonham Carter. I just feel like they didn't give her enough to do this season. Agreed. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And she, her, just her presence is so depressing. I was like, Margaret, like pull yourself together, you know? Yeah, Yeah. she was, Margaret was probably my least favorite part of this season, which is last season. I really liked her. You know, she was, she was a very interesting story. And this season, every time she came on, I was like, I don't really need to see this anymore. Yeah. She was (laughs) just old and mean and sad. 
you can just see her and the queen mother just getting dusty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Musty, you know? <laughs> yeah. And with like their old lady hairdos. I and mean, I mean, maybe that's the point. I mean, maybe it was effective in making me like kind of like, okay, Margaret, like we've had enough of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you guys, it's been I I could go on and on about the crown, but for our listeners' sake, we should probably wrap it up. Thank you so much for indulging me in this conversation. I personally really needed this. Uh, yeah. having like just a show to really dive into this week was huge, hugely beneficial for my mental health, albeit a tragic and <laughs> depressing show. Still a great story to throw yourself into. I'm halfway through the You're Wrong About series on Princess Diana. Really recommend it. Today I listened to Jillian Anderson on Fresh Air talk about portraying Margaret Thatcher. She has a lot of really interesting things to say about Margaret Thatcher and whether or not she was a feminist. Uh, I recommend listening to that. Probably going to buy the Diana Chronicles, the book, because why not? You know? Um, can't wait till next season. And in the meantime, I highly recommend going back and rewatching Downton Abbey. It also, it scratches this British itch. I just did it. And it was a lovely several weeks. Last thing, we need to talk about the way that Prince Philip and Prince Charles talk. Like, I don't know what it is, but it's like they talk from the, the, the top oh. of their mouth. Like the and Anne, their too. Mouth. Anne does it, too. Anne talks like this, too. Like, I'm riding my horses and my marriage is terrible. It's like all in the front of the mouth and through the nose. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't like it either. I'm like, why are you talking like that? Like, I'd rather take like Cockney, like dirty, like Love Island <laughs> than like what we're getting here. A lot of horse girl energy in the crown too. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Every time the queen sees a horse, you're like, all right, settle down, Elizabeth. Like you are. Well, I think that's why Charles liked Camilla. She was a horse girl. (laughs) So it's interesting because in the you're wrong about thing, they talk about how she's like kind of like a country girl who didn't care where Diana is like, you know, she'd be an Instagram influencer today and how like real old money doesn't care about the way they look and new money cares more. I just thought it was super fascinating. Again, go listen to it if you are still interested in hearing more about Diana. Anyways, time to wrap up this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, remember to subscribe to our HiveMind newsletter, hivemind.substack.com. Uh, please leave us a good rating and review. Anything else? Oh, become a member of the Beehive on the membership page of thebeehive.com. And we will all be back next week.